Well, it's great to be with you again. Uh, thank you so much, Kieran, for your welcome. I think one time I preached here when Malcolm was the vicar, he introduced me as Philip Adams. Um, I'm not. Uh, my name is Peter, and I'm Adam rather than Adams because there's only one of me. Well, dear friends, uh, if you had been in Jerusalem on the 18th of December, 520 BC, you would have heard these words from God to his people through the prophet Haggai. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest for a ruling if one carries consecrated meat and it touches something, does it become holy? The answer is no. If any was, anyone is unclean and touches uh, any of these things, do they become unclean? The answer is yes. Your washing is on the line. You decide... You've had enough dry weather, seem to have lots of it over here. Time to bring it in, you're pulling it off the, off the washing line and it falls into the dirt. You have cleaned these clothes, do they make the dirt clean? Answer, no. As you bring the dirty clothes in from the washing line ready to be washed again, you forget to wipe the dirt off your feet. And having just washed the kitchen floor, you walk the dirt into the kitchen floor. Is the kitchen floor dirty? The answer is yes. For dirty people make everything they do dirty. Dirt contaminates. And that's true of the people. They were, we must say, conscientiously rebuilding the temple, but their lives were a long way away from their public actions. The problem is very like the one Jesus described in Mark chapter 7. It's what comes out of a person that defiles them. We're defiled from within the heart. From the heart, evil thoughts come and then Jesus lists the evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. These defile a person. I imagine not all on the same day. It would be quite a busy day to include all of those. But they seep out at inconvenient moments, don't they? 
I remember when I was uh, first a minister, somebody uh, came into the church after the service and she pressed $100 in my hand and she said, Dear, this is for the church. Do you know what my first thought was? I've been working very hard this week. So what I'll do is take some of the money and go down the street and have a coffee as a reward and put the rest in the collection. That's understandable, isn't it? A minor theft? Nobody would know. No great suffering to anybody, just a cup of coffee. I mean, after all. Then God slapped me across the chops and said, if you do that, in five years' time you'll be taking a lot. Where did the thought come from? From outside? No. Came from my heart. And I imagine it's significant that they were doing a noble task in rebuilding the temple, though God had told them they should do that, and they were doing it. And they might have thought to themselves, well, while we're doing this really important task, we can kind of relax in the area of personal discipline and personal holiness. It's like people in churches who think, well... um, I've, I've done lots, I've, I've really been a very good person. I've, I've helped lots of people and so on. And, and so surely God will excuse me in this area of my life. I can engage in a bit of slander or something like that. Uh, and uh, well, that'll, that'll be fine because it's kind of covered by the really good things I've done. Well, that is so foolish. It's even stupid. Because we can't cover our dirtiness by our cleanness. Our only forgiveness lies in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the big theme of the Bible is God says, I am holy. Then he says to his people, I have made you holy. Then he says to his people, be holy. God says, I'm holy, I've made you holy, now you have to be holy. Well, God does the same for us, doesn't he? He says, I'm holy. We learn, as we learned from uh, the reading from uh, Hebrews chapter 10, that uh, we have been made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. So God says, I am holy. I made you holy by the death of my son on the cross, by his blood shed on the cross. I'm a holy God. I've made you holy. But he also says, you have to be holy. In fact, it's put even more strongly in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, chapter 12 and verse 14. Uh, Make every effort to be holy. Make every effort to be holy. So let me ask you, how much effort do you put in to being holy every day? I know you wash the dishes. I know you do your daily tasks. 
No doubt you help other people. But how much effort do you put into growing in holiness every day? If I asked you after the service, uh, what, what sins are you currently putting to death? Would you be able to tell me what sins you're currently putting to death? Or if I asked you, uh, what, what, what uh, aspect of character or what good work should you be doing? Does God expect you to be doing? Uh, are you doing? Are you growing? Are you doing those good works? One of the things I enjoy doing when I'm uh, speaking at preachers' conferences is to ask the preachers how long it is since they've changed the way they live by something they've read in the Bible. See, they're busy preaching to other people, as I'm doing now, most enthusiastically, that you need to change, but I want to know that they're changing. So I ask, how long is it since you've changed the way you live by something you've read in the Bible? It's a great question to ask because we can develop the habit of reading the Bible but not actually hearing God speak to us from the Bible. We just think, oh, well, yes, I've read that. I know that. I know that story. I've read that before. And we don't actually wait on God to speak to us from these scriptures. I ask, is it two days since God has changed you? Or is it two weeks or two years or two decades? Or from the look of some of them, is it two centuries uh, that you've been preaching and nothing has changed? I think one reason why we don't put every, don't make every effort to be holy is because we're spending all our effort in being happy. So all the energy we should put into being holy, we put into being happy. So if, uh, you know, in an ordinary conversation, uh, did you have a good weekend? Well, yes, it was a happy weekend. Uh, I had breakfast, that was good. And um, then I, uh, what did I do? I met some neighbours for a cup of tea. That was a nice thing to do. Yes, I had a good weekend. Did you have a good year last year? Yes, nothing really went wrong. It was a fairly happy year. So on. That, that's the way we naturally think. Do but really the question is, did you, did you have a holy weekend? Did you, did you see God changing you to be more and more like the Lord Jesus? Did, did you see more of the fruit of the Spirit in your life over the weekend? That would be a weekend in which you were making every effort to be holy because God has made you holy by the blood body of his Son offered on the cross. And you know, one temptation resisted is a wonderful moment of grace. One temptation resisted is a wonderful moment of grace. And one deed done, not because it makes us happy, but because we're following the Lord Jesus, that is a wonderful moment of grace. I was uh, walking the other day and I saw a, a bush with some lovely flowers on it, uh, flowers I hadn't seen before. 
So I thought, mm, I'll get one of those. I did not, I did not pluck a flower from the bush. <laughs> I reached down and picked up a flower which had fallen from the bush, was sitting, having a little rest in the grass, and I picked it up and I took it back to the place I'm staying. And I thought to myself, that is such a beautiful flower. And it's a promise of a restored and beautiful creation when the Lord Jesus returns. You see, the smallest sign of your growth in holiness is a wonderful promise of the day when Jesus will return and raise you from the dead and change your lowly body to be like his glorious body. There's a sign of glory now, which is a promise of glory to come. You do meet people, don't you, who, uh, because they've lived a life pursuing holiness rather than happiness, are people in whom you can see the glory and wonder of the Lord Jesus. You can just see it in their face, can't you? I met somebody last week. I said, how are you? She said, oh, I'm, she was... Uh, feeling just awful, she was physically awful. But but I was so encouraged because I saw in her face a glimpse of the glory of God, the presence of God's spirit, because she's a woman who has served God faithfully and she has repented of her sins and she's found constant new life through the power of Christ's resurrection, through the power of the spirit. And she encouraged me to think, well, I should be pursuing holiness. I should be making every effort to pursue holiness as well. Indeed, I think a great prayer to pray is, God, please transform me into the image of your Son, whatever it takes. Please do whatever it takes to enable me to die to sin and live to righteousness. Please do whatever it takes for me to put to death the works of the flesh and for the work of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, to flourish in my life. Well, the people have been unclean and God has judged them for their uncleanness. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there was but 10. When one came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you, God says, and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Consider from this day on, from the 24th day of the sixth, ninth month, since that day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is there any seed left in the barn? Do the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tr tree still yield nothing? But then hear this great promise of God, this gift of God's grace in the next words. Haggai chapter 2, verse 19, from this day on, I will bless you. Yes, their, their only hope lies not in the strength of their return, but in the free gift of God in deciding to bless them despite their condition. 
And dear brothers and sisters, that's what God decides to do in our life every day. To bless us just as we are in order to transform us. God loves us just as we are and blesses us in the Lord Jesus Christ that he might continue to transform us into the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus. If you try to make progress in getting a happy life, you will be disappointed. The smallest step towards holiness is the promise of a great future. It's like, isn't it, when you you meet somebody who's just become a Christian. That's so encouraging, isn't it? Because things which you are taking for granted, perhaps, are new and exciting for them. Did you know that God forgives me? Did you know I've got eternal life? They're so excited, aren't they? And rightly so. But you see, one person who becomes a Christian is a promise of an even more wonderful future when there will be a great multitude from every nation gathered around the throne of God, worshipping God and the Lamb. One convert is a sign of that miraculous day when heaven and earth will praise God. What then of the last three verses of chapter 2? The word of the Lord came a second time. Well, that was a busy day, wasn't it? Not just one prophecy, but two. They got their money's worth, didn't they? It was worth being alive that day, as it's worth being alive today. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth, to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, overthrow the chariots and riders, the horses and riders shall fall, every one by the sword of a comrade. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I'll take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel was the Jewish governor under the great Persian Empire. Uh, God had promised, hadn't he, that that his own people would be a great independent power and that a king of David's line, a descendant of David, would be a mighty king seated on his throne in Jerusalem. Instead, the people of God were subject to the Persians, Their governor, although a Jew, one of them, was appointed by the Persians. They paid taxes to the Persians and they only kept living there by the grace of the Persian Empire. It was not a magnificent time. It was a time where things were, we might say, not the best. But as I thought about Uh, the book of Haggai and the time being not the best. Actually, in every book in the Bible, the time is not the best. Isn't that right? And actually, that's true of our experience, isn't it, of churches. We are not in the best situation at present. 
That's certainly true of the church in the West, isn't it? Shrinking fast. And when I talk to uh, young ministers who are discovering that they're not the best minister in the world, I have to say, I wasn't pointing at you in particular, dear brother, but when I point, when I meet young ministers, anyway, uh, I say, well, actually, God is used to working in not the best situations and using people who are not the best people. That's a comfort, isn't it? Look around the room. God can work with you that you are not the best people in the best, not, and in not the best situation. God delights in working in human weakness, in the midst of human weakness, as he is here. But listen to his promise to Zerubbabel. Just a, gov- just a, sm- a governor of a small bit of the great Persian empire. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, to overthrow the, the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdom. Not only is God going to kind of win a cosmic victory, but also on that day, says the Lord of hosts, I'll take you, O Zerubbabel, servant of the Persians. But my servant, son of Shealtiel, I'll make you like a signet ring. That is, I'll give you back the power you need to rule, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. And if you know your Bible well, you'll know that Zerubbabel was an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 verse 13. So the promise God made to Zerubbabel will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus in his first coming in weakness and in his second coming in power. Notice that all this depends not on human activity but on the work of God. We read back in uh, verse 17, God says, I struck you with blight and mildew and hail. But then he says in verse 19, I will bless you. If God strikes them with trouble, there's nothing they can do about it. If God says, I will bless you, he will bless them. And then here, all that God says that he's, a, he's going to do in verses uh, 21 following, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms. On that day, I will take you, O Zerubbabel. I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Our only hope, and the only hope for this world, lies in the promises of God the promises of God, and the actions of God. You know, you watch the news at night. It's so depressing, isn't it? I think they, they uh, go through all the news there is and pick out the worst news and put it all together. Having said, good evening, they then tell you why it's not a good evening because things are collapsing all around the world. And the news I watch, they occasionally put in a bit of good news at the end just to cheer you up. It's called The Weather. Well, I ask you, where will we find good news in this world? Where will we find hope? Where will we find signs of hope? The answer is in God and God's words and God's promises and God's great work through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Hope lies in the ruin of our expectations, wrote the Sri Lankan theologian D.T. Niles. Our only hope lies in the promises of God. And as you look at the world and as you look at yourself, as you look at this church, look for little signs of hope. Look for little signs of hope. I often say to uh, people, when, when you go to bed at night, uh, think back over the day and think, and think of three gifts that God has given you and thank God for them. Because we can often go through a day and take God for granted. So just think of three things you want to thank God for. But I, I'll adapt that today, I think. Look, uh, look for three small signs of God's grace at work in you in this church and in this world. Look for three small signs of hope. God gives us the small signs of hope. And he gives us his promises in the scripture that we might be people of hope as well as holiness. Look for small signs of God's grace at work in your life in the life of this church, in the world around you, in opportunities you get to speak of Jesus, in an answered prayer, a lesson you've learnt, a sin you've confessed, a new way of living that you've adopted, for a sign of a growth in grace of a neighbour or a friend or someone in your family, for the good gifts of the Christians around you, These are all signs of hope placed carefully by God to encourage us to trust him more and more and to trust so strongly that we don't need the little signs because our hope is in God himself. Be holy. Be hopeful. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your patience with your people back in Haggai's day. We thank you that you had brought them back to Jerusalem. And we thank you that though they were slow in returning to you and slow in building the temple and although their lives were a mess, you still persisted with them in your grace and kindness. You loved them so much that you didn't let them go. And we thank you for your grace and kindness in sending the prophet Haggai and for the words you spoke to your people through him. Please use those words today to encourage this church to encourage us. Please teach us from the scriptures every day. Please train us to look to you every day for your promises to be fulfilled. And please give us a great hope in your saving grace, your saving power, and your saving purpose for us, for this church, and for your world. And please bring many men and women and children all around the world to come and know you and to bring glory to you through the Lord Jesus.
In his name we pray.